This is episode number 37 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. In this episode, we have Corbin Crutchley, who's a repeat visitor on the Polyglot Developer Podcast. And for this particular episode, we're going to be focusing on writing and using tests within our development projects. When it comes to testing, there are quite a few tests. So you have unit tests, integration tests, end-to-end tests, and a whole lot of other tests. And if you're like me, you find all of them to be a total hassle or chore when it comes to the development process. So the goal of this particular episode is to show you, well, hey, it's not that difficult to begin testing in your application. And we want to show you when and where to use each of the various tests. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, I'm with Corbin Crutchley, a repeat visitor to the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and we're going to be talking about testing. So this isn't taking exam types testing, this is writing your own tests for your applications. But before we jump right into the core content of the episode, I want to give Corbin a chance to give us an update on what he's doing um, and just an overall introduction for those who might be new uh, to Corbin. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, just in case uh, somebody didn't catch one of your previous episodes. I think you were on the show maybe two other times? Yeah, I think it was two. My name is Corbin. I like uh, retro game systems. I definitely uh, write a lot of blog posts, as many as I can, for my site, uh, unicornutterances.com. I live stream on Twitch. Make sure to do so weekly, at least once a week on Thursdays, 4 to 6 p.m. PST. Uh, I don't know. I'm just a passionate person about teaching programming and uh, like doing so. Now, you spend most of your time doing JavaScript, right? Yeah, I'm mostly a front-end developer, uh, although I've done back-end systems. I've done C-sharp. I've done .NET, um, Java, a few other languages. So when it comes to testing, and that's the, the topic of this episode, would you say that most of your experience is in JavaScript, or have you done? Uh, have you worked with other testing frameworks outside of the JavaScript world? I've worked primarily with JavaScript. Um, I've done a lot more testing in larger scale projects. For some of my side projects, I'll be a little more lenient um, and kind of, you know, hey, it's maybe 30 lines of code. It's no big deal. Um, So the larger projects that I've worked with in JavaScript are the ones that I've tended to do the most testing within. Awesome. So when somebody says that uh, you should test your uh, project or your test your application, are they saying open it? I mean, this may be a silly question or it may seem like a silly question, but this is actually very serious. I mean, um, we definitely want to get to uh, the, the finer details here. So what, what does that mean when somebody says test your project? Of course. So testing has kind of multiple meanings. One of them is kind of that manual testing cycle. You know, you want to have a QA person on on your team, even if that's you, the developer, um, for a short period of time where you're going through your application, you're clicking through as a user, you're interacting with it the same way your user would, and making sure that it functions the way you would expect. Although that's not necessarily what we mean when we talk about testing in like the automated sense. So when someone says that you need to write tests, what they're usually inferring to is using some form of framework or library like Jest or uh, Mocha, something along those lines, and being able to write code that will do that same functionality, click through your application, check to make sure it has the expected outputs, has the same visual effects, everything else, and interact with your code base in an automated fashion so that when you make changes in the future, you don't have to manually click through your app and make sure that everything's working again. 
you can just run your tests and go, okay, I know for a fact that things are working the way that they were before. Now, how, how aggressive um, do you have to be with this? I mean, you mentioned uh, giving the experience as if the user was, was running your application. I've had plenty of applications where somewhere out of the blue, I get this user that's found the craziest edge cases to break my applications. How, how are we uh, um, accounting for these kind of scenarios? That that's a great question. That's super contextual, you know, um, sure. like most things in programming, there's no one size fits all answer. Um, and not only is there not a one size fits all answer for the, the scale of testing. So making sure that you're clicking 30 different things and doing this and this and this, but there's also a different sense of context when it comes to the type of testing you do, which I'm sure we'll touch on in a bit. Um, but to answer your question more immediately, I think that so long as you have your basic functionality covered, um, especially in like large scale applications, you may have a ton of different features and you may have a ton of different functionality. Um, but really one of the ways that you want to start with getting your test coverage up um, is to test the individual components that make up your primary use case. Right. So like if I'm a note taking app, it would be a really good idea to make sure that I'm testing that I'm saving notes and able to edit notes and save notes. But if a menu button doesn't happen to work or if, you know, some minor functionality doesn't happen to work, um, that's something that might not be integral for an initial candidate of testing. That said, when you move forward and you find a bug, you usually want to write a test for that bug so that when you fix it, you know that it's not going to come back in some capacity. Um, and that's that's typically what TDD or test-driven development means, is that you want to write tests every time you're, you're adding in some new feature or new uh, uh, bug fix in order to re uh, modify or update your code, make sure that it doesn't regress. So, I mean, maybe I'm going to go down the rabbit hole on this one. Um, but if you're, if say somebody's, uh, you've implemented a new feature of code and you've got to write a test for it, what if uh, that feature of code has some kind of effect on another feature? Do you go back and edit your tests or do you create new tests or how, how does that work? It depends. Um... Although usually what I'll end up doing is I'll make sure that whatever new things I added are tested. Uh, so obviously the new stuff is being tested. But as you mentioned, there's usually an integration with old tests. Uh, and when I do so, I tend to make sure that the whole scope is covered, not just um, I can click a button here and also I can bring up a dialogue. But usually you want to have some form of intermediate test that that is like, when I click the button, it brings up the dialogue X, Y, Z. Um, and this is kind of like looking at the different types of tests that there are. Yeah. So why don't you walk us through it and uh, tell us about what are the possible types? Of course. So there are integration tests where you can take a look at kind of a high level of uh, how you're integrating your code. So not just testing one component or another component, but you're testing multiple components in sequence with one another. You also have unit testing, which is where you test a very, very small integral, uh, like a very, very small section of your code. So testing only the button and the dialogue separately might be a unit test. Um, there's snapshot tests, which is where you basically take a picture of your HTML and you compare it against the old version of HTML. It doesn't have to be an HTML. It's just an example. Is it like a diff? 
Yeah, definitely. You, there are diff tests, um, which aren't super useful in a lot of cases. But if you're doing something like a Babel plugin, where you're manipulating a programming language during compilation, a snapshot test would be incredibly useful to you at that point. Got um, it. Although it had been, it, it it has historically been used in the past for HTML testing. And in reality, it just doesn't tend to play very well uh, with uh, actually getting the feedback of how your users uh, tend to play with your app. But um, there's also end-to-end -end testing. So I had mentioned integration testing, which is like testing multiple functionalities at once uh, by rendering kind of like your page instead of a component. And end-to-end -end testing is kind of one step above that where you're not just testing your front end, you're also testing the back end as well. So you're you're literally opening a browser and you're clicking on the app exactly as a user would. And you usually use some type of headless browser like Puppeteer or uh, uh, you use Cypress to, to work with something like that. Doesn't Cypress use um, Puppeteer in the background or PhantomJS if that's even a thing? Yeah, anymore? I think so. I, I just couldn't think of another one off the top of my head. So I, I uh, opted with Cypress. <laughs> and Cypress is an end-to-end -end testing framework, correct? Yep. Yeah, so it's uh, on top of uh, the headless browser. It's a way to be able to select DOM nodes and click on buttons and items, stuff like that. So it's a, um, a framework that allows you to build those end-to-end -end tests. So you mentioned Jest. You mentioned, uh, I think, Mocha and Cypress. Um, we know that Cypress is an end-to-end -end testing framework. Uh, what about the others? So Jest and Mocha are test runners. I, I may be a little bit wrong on some of these because I know that Mocha tends to uh, associate itself with other libraries like uh, Simon and Chai. But effectively, what they allow you to do is they allow you to run your tests. Uh, so you have uh, 10 tests for one component, you have 20 tests for another component, so on and so forth. And it will go through and run those tests and usually allow you a way to render to a, a phantom DOM um, or like a JavaScript implementation of the DOM, usually JS DOM. Uh, and it'll allow you to make those same uh, checks on the DOM, what's rendered, what's not rendered, stuff like that. Um, but it'll do so, it's it, kind of like a, a framework but it's usually more, uh, it's usually less focused about how you write the tests and more enabling you to write the tests in the first place. Um, so it's more like a library than a framework in that method for integration tests and unit tests. Got it. So, so maybe I'm just a little bit confused. I, I for one am terrible when it comes to testing. So these questions are serious questions. Um, you, you mentioned that, um, it, I guess it runs the JavaScript, right? Is that is that what you just said for, for Mocha and um, one of the libraries that it uses? Yeah, so so it'll, like, you can describe blocks of tests and then yeah. you can run, like, only that one block or you can run all your tests. You can kind of pick yeah. and choose which tests you run, which is like, very helpful when you're editing specific files and you yeah. want to run the tests uh, associated only with what your current development is touching. All right, so then maybe I just interpreted it differently because the way that you explained it the first time, it kind of sounded like the same kind of result that you would get with Cypress and an end-to-end -end test uh, being as it's running JavaScript, but it's just running it in a different different way, right? It, right, so instead of loading up an entire JavaScript browser and parsing your CSS and doing everything like that, it's running a, it's usually running a JavaScript implementation of the DOM. So it doesn't have some of the functionality. Like I know if you start getting into like, 
really specific observe uh, results, which is like when you check when the user scrolled or, or something like that. Um, there's some implementation differences between JS DOM and something like Chrome. Uh, but the nice result is that it's usually a lot faster than having to spin up an entire process that loads all of Chrome and all the memory management of a browser, stuff like that. Um, so it's a little bit more limited and it might not be a hundred percent the same, but it's, it's close enough to the specification of HTML that you can render your results and do your testing there without having to load up a whole instance of Chrome. Got it. That makes sense. Um, so now I want to ask you a few questions on uh, scenarios on what type of test might be the best choice. Um, and if there is no best choice, maybe we maybe we go into that. Um, yeah. So so say I'm building an application. This application um, is going to interact with a database in some fashion. Um, I need to be able to test that uh, one, the actual connection to that database works, and two. I want to make sure that the data I get back from that database um, is what I expect. Um, what what would that testing scenario look like? I think that it depends on the scope of your project and the size of your team. And I'll give you an example. So one solution to this problem might be a simple end-to-end -end test, right? I connect to the real database. I really query for data and I really get that data back. And then I observe the data in some capacity and, you know, um, and that's super valid. Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but let's say that I only want to test the front end, right? The front end, I want to test that I'm making the right connection calls. So I'm testing the networking capabilities of my app rather than I am the database itself, because at some point you have to rely on the stability of like, um, if you hire a company for a database, you tend to want their database to work. So, you know, writing tests that test against an existing uh, framework or existing code um, might not be worth your time. But what is your, worth your time is making sure that your implementation of it is correct. So you might want to do something like an integration test where you mock out some of your network calls. But you can, uh, when you click the button, you still expect your mock to be called with a certain set of parameters. And you expect those certain set of parameters to match what your, your database expects. So you could do one set of integration tests that mocks out the network layer and then kind of observe what you're doing there and say, hey, uh, my button isn't sending the right parameters to the database anymore. Why is that? And then you could have another set of tests on your server that would say when given these parameters that you hard code in to your test, when I get these parameters, I expect my server to generate some form of action when you mock out the database. And then you can say, I expect the database to have been written to, even if it's not writing to the real database. So it's kind of picking and choosing your battles of understanding this server is used by multi-million dollar companies. You know, like I'm going to trust the database company. Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering because I, I assume that this is this is a question that a lot of people have because a lot of people I think are, do consider themselves to be full stack developers, and uh, maybe they get hung up on the database aspect, which is just one of many uh, testing scenarios. Uh, one thing that maybe I'm still curious about on what you would do is, do you rely on the fact that uh, people whoever's changing the database, for example? gives you the updated information to add to your to your test for mocking? Because I imagine that some people want to make sure that maybe their schema didn't change on their database because that could break a whole lot of things, right? 
For sure. So when you end up changing the database schema, um, you absolutely want to make sure that your uh, code is up to date. And there are many ways to do that, but ultimately it comes down to communication, right? So making sure that you're communicating with your team, having a, a good process for uh, communicating changes, because even when you implement things that help stop gap that communication. So a great example is I worked for a company that used GraphQL and they, they used it fairly extensively. Um, they documented their changes within the GraphQL database uh, or well, API really well. And when we, on the front end team, when we would uh, use the TypeScript types, because we were using TypeScript for the project, we would just grab them from the GraphQL schema and all of our code would automatically validate against the server, quote, end quote, no communication required. Well, the problem is, is that we would rely on properties and then the schema would change and then those properties would go away and it would throw an error and it would be like, hey, who changed this and where did this come from and why, you know, it was just still, even though we had those processes in place to be able to update our mocks and make sure that our mocks, mocks were perfect every time, there's still a component of communication that's always integral um, when working with teams. Got it. And when it comes to these different testing strategies, whether that be unit or integration, snapshot, uh, and end-to-end, uh, end, I'm just throwing out buzzwords here, um, What sh should there be a certain stage of development or publishing that each one of these tests are run? Because maybe, maybe I don't know, and you correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you don't want to run your end-to-end -end tests all the time. Maybe it's just not important until a certain life cycle stage of your development process um, is, can you talk about that? Yeah. So one of the things that, that I tend to find really convenient about testing is that it forces you to think about these questions, right? So like understanding that you're going to have a QA stage, understanding that once it hits QA stage, you might have um, a beta phase uh, depending on your application, or you might have um, conditional, uh, um, what is it called where you deployed it to only specific people like a to b tests and stuff yeah so understanding that it's going to really depend on your application but more than that it's going to make you sit down and ask those questions and develop a set of processes to follow uh, is really important and one of the things that's very nice about that is that once you understand what your process is you can implement it with code um, and you can automate that process usually so a great example is we didn't want to run on one of my company's end-to-end uh, -end tests every time. So what we would do is we would have our CI system run on every single pull request, the integration and unit tests. And that served a really, really good foundation of, hey, your build broke something, go fix it before we merge it into staging. Once we hit staging, we had like a QA cycle that was another CI pipeline and it would deploy to an internal uh, a, a URL that, that uh, manual QA testers could go through, um, but no one else. Um, and then CI would run end-to-end uh, -end tests during that process. So being able to have like an incremental set of processes where we're running unit tests every time, but we're not running end-to-end -end tests every time, and we're waiting until it's more appropriate to do so. Um, so it depends on your process, but it does make you think more about your process, which is very nice. Can you think of a scenario where um, there would be one most important type of test for pretty much every 
every application? Like if you could, if you had to choose one test because you're, maybe you're getting into testing, um, who, who knows the reason, um, what do you feel is the most beneficial to your application of the tests that are available? So I'm going to quote someone that I don't know if they said it originally, but it's where I first heard it. I'm going to quote sure. Kent Dodds, uh, write tests, mostly integration. Uh, and there's like this idea of like this funnel that you want to write code uh, tests for. So you want to start with a certain set of uh, tests and, and primarily what you want to have is integration tests. Um, they allow you like a really nice separation away from your server. Um, so you can make sure that kind of like who to blame, but also more importantly, who to fix, how to fix. Um, so it more accurately pinpoints where the problem lies. So you don't have to worry about, oh, my network is faulty. Well, that's going to fail an end to end test if your network is faulty, but that's not the fault of the front end team. You know, that's not something that you can go fix there. So integration tests give you a really good, so long as you're writing them proper, uh, a really good insight into how the user is using your application without having to muddy some of the waters of um, like your network getting involved or, or having to set up a proper database to write to database. Um, and it gives you a little bit more insight than a unit test does, because again, if that integration between that button and that dialogue fails, you're not going to know until you write a unit test for that. Got it. That makes sense. Um, earlier in this podcast episode, I had asked about edge cases and you threw around the term coverage. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more on how coverage is calculated? Sure. So if you look at the way that a test is ran, um, let, actually, let me back up. Let me start by explaining what coverage is first, um, and then I'll kind of get into the more technical aspects of how it's generated um, and what one of the gotchas is uh, involving coverage. So coverage is almost self-explanatory where you're looking for the amount of uh, code that you've written has a test associated with it that is checking whether or not that code is running properly. So uh, if I have a huge, huge application and I only write one test, likely my code coverage is gonna be fairly low because I'm not testing a bunch of code that I've written. Likewise, if I spend one day on writing code and one week on writing tests, I don't know how you would do that. That's some very complicated code. <laughs> but um, you would probably end up with really, really, really good coverage, maybe even 100% coverage. And this is very difficult to measure, partially because code isn't always perfect and neat and tidy in a way that is um, easily parsable. Um, and the way that it is generated is that it will run through the code and every line that it comes across, it will mark internally. And once a test is ran, it will check against those lines that are ran internally. And it will say, has this line been ran in a test? Yes, no. And then if yes, then add it to the coverage. If no, add it to the coverage. Well, one of the gotchas is as you write more tests, your test coverage might go down. And that seems really, really counterintuitive. But the reason for this is because as your tests are seeing more and more lines of code, they're able to say more definitively, like once you import a file in one specific feature, not another, it's going to see those extra lines of code and say, hey, you haven't covered those, even though you're writing more tests. It's realizing that there's more code than it knew about initially. Makes sense. So now I guess I have two questions around this then. Um, is a hundred percent or close to a hundred percent an indicator of a 
uh, well-coded project? I I want to say yes, because that sounds really happy and like, oh boy, I get to go write tests. It's going to mean my code is really great. But in reality, um, if you're writing tests properly, tests have nothing to do with code quality. They really don't. Um, now, you usually when you write tests, it means that your code is better, but that's just because you're someone that cares enough to go write tests. Um, but usually what you want to do is you want to write your tests in a way that don't focus on your implementation details in any way whatsoever. So a test shouldn't care if you've copied and pasted the same code 30 times or if you used a for loop, so long as it has the same result to the user. Um, furthermore, there's a lot of instances where you can have uh, really complicated code um, like overly complicated code where you over genericize things um, and your test coverage is really high. But the reason why your test coverage is really high is because you're not checking the things that the user cares about. So instead of checking that, hey, there is a button, it has text, I can click the button, you're checking that it renders an HTML element and so on and so forth. So it depends on how you write your tests. Um, and more than that, your tests and your implementation should be separated enough that it doesn't matter whether your code is implemented properly for your tests to pass or not. So it's part of like the, the separation of, of uh, concerns there. Got it. And now, um, because you mentioned that as you write more tests, your code coverage might uh, decrease. Um, this, this brought up something in my mind. If, is there scenarios where you need to write tests for your tests? There are are scenarios where you may come across that that uh, line of reasoning. And this is why I, I, so recently I wrote a blog post about how to write simpler tests. Um, and it is directly to counteract that exact behavior. So let's say that I'm writing a test to show that there's data in a, a data grid. Well, I might be tempted to do a for loop on my data source. And then in that for loop, expect there to be data on screen and I might so on and so forth. The problem there is that I'm introducing logic into my tests. And when I introduce logic into my tests, I now have to debug my tests, right? Which is no fun. Uh, it's not fun to debug normal code. It's even more painful to debug tests because you have no idea if the tests are working the way that they should or not, or if it's your code that has an implementation problem. Um, so usually when you're writing tests, what you want to go for is you want to have really, really simple tests even if it means copying and pasting lines of code and making your test super long and, and kind of verbose, but you want to keep your logic in your tests super low. So are you, are you saying that you should have tests that say execute function and then assert equals or something like that without actually doing any kind of loops or if statements or anything? Yeah. So uh, a great example is instead of uh, for each row, see if all the data exists, I literally copy and paste expect this name to be on screen, expect this to be on screen, expect this to be on screen. Um, and that sounds super boring and super duplicative, um, but it's a very different thought process for how you approach writing simpler tests versus how you approach writing generic code. Um, and it's just to make that that uh, debugging process much easier. If you know exactly where a test is failing and you have no ambiguity about what a variable was in this for loop and what so on and so forth was, your error message is much clearer and it's much more obvious where to go to fix the problem. Makes sense. So let's uh, let's take a small shift here. Let's uh, let's say you're somebody like me who um, 
test their code in production, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, there's a lot of people like uh, like me. Um, I know that some of them are ashamed to admit it. Uh, how how do you suggest making writing tests less of a chore? Um, because to me, um, I don't write tests. Um, I, I know I should. It's like I should probably be eating healthy as well. Um, but I don't do it. Uh, so how, how do you get into that mindset? So th- the original question you poised was, how do you make it less of a chore? And if I knew the answer to that, all of my tests, all of my projects would have 100% coverage. But the reality of the matter is it's a chore, right? Like, even if you like writing tests, it's still a thing you should be doing and still a thing that you kind of have to force yourself and set aside time to and do, right? Um, If it didn't take any time at all, I don't think that there would really be discussions about it. You know, I don't know if this podcast would even have an episode regarding testing. Um, So whether it's convincing yourself that you need to write tests or convincing your product manager that you need time to write tests. Um, there still is that, that like, you know, it's, it's a task, it's a chore. It's something that we need to do. Um, one of the things that I find that helps me a lot is either I will write, like, let's say that I have good tests already and I'm developing a new button and I want this button to do this certain thing. I will write down what the test should be as I'm developing. And then right after I finish implementation, I'll write down the test to make sure that it's working as expected. So kind of developing alongside. Um, I personally don't like test-driven development. I find it a little bit hard to wrap my head around. Like I just don't have a really great time um, writing a test before writing the code. I just, I don't know why I just can't really do that very well. So I, I do something very similar where it's write the feature, then immediately write the test and then write the edge cases and then finish the code. Um, so kind of like, half the code, half the test, half the code, and then finish the test, you know? Um, Otherwise, dedicating some block time to it. So saying one day out of a week, I'm going to write tests is something that can help your code base in a major way. Um, But definitely it is a chore and something that uh, takes a bit of convincing of yourself and others to be able to sit down and do. And more than that, takes a bit of time to get used to doing and uh, start making sense of. So... Let me ask you another question then, um, since you you agree that it is a chore. Um, let, let's let's say that you're a front end developer. This is something that you are, and you've you've particularly been in this space, uh, this position, I think, before. Uh, let's say you're you're hunting for a job or a front end mm-hmm. developer position. Is the expectation that uh, you are familiar and fluent at writing tests for most of these these positions as an engineer, or um, is it good enough that you are just you just know um, what the difference is between the all of the tests, even if you don't have hands on, or maybe you can shed some light into that. I think that to make any sweeping statement on my end would be incorrect. <laughs> sure. That said, um, I will try to give a bit of insight from my perspective, just from where yeah. I've been. So take it with a, a grain of salt, but but here it is, yeah. anyways. Um. I have had luck with getting hired without having much experience in testing. Um, when I got hired at Hilton, uh, I really hadn't written very many tests at all. I'd maybe written a, a few, maybe. Um, and it was something that I learned on the job. And it was something that I was very grateful to learn on the job uh, because it gave me some of the insight that I'm, I'm able to talk about today in terms of like write simpler tests, you know, things that seem 
very anti-pattern for development. You know, like, why would I copy and paste a thing if I can use a for loop, you know? Um, and working with the QA team in particular was really like insightful because uh, it's writing for the audience that you're talking to, you know, understanding that you're not just writing the test for yourself, you're writing the test for junior developers new to the team, new to programming in general, you know, um, which are really helpful. So I think that in very broad terms, just based on my experience, I don't think that testing is like super mandatory unless if you're going for like a senior level position. Um, but if you're looking for a mid-level position, knowing how to write tests effectively and knowing how to move forward with it is kind of like a benefit. Um, it's like accessibility. Um, if you know how to do accessibility front, left, sideways, um, it's definitely a, a super advantageous skill to have. Um, but it's niche enough that if you have a, a passing knowledge of the generalizations around them, um, you can probably get hired all the same, but you want to make sure that someone on the team does have that specialty. Otherwise the end user ends up suffering for it. In the case of accessibility, I mean, that's just suffering from lack of keyboard usage, lack of everything else. Um, sure. but then in testing the user suffers from a more buggy, less stable software that, that you might be able to fix with, uh, more thorough testing, uh, regressions are a brat when you're a user. So makes sense. Yeah. Because I mean, this is something I know a lot of people worry about. I mean, you can't, you can't know everything, but what, what do you have to know in order to, to land that job? Right. And, and tests definitely help. Right. They help, but it's not always mandatory. So it depends. Yeah. Um, yeah. So th this, this was a great episode so far. Do you have anything that you want to leave the, the listeners with something that we might've missed? Um, as we were talking? Um, I mean, there, there's all sorts of things to keep in mind when you're writing tests. Um, you want to keep them focused uh, in the sense that you don't want to write the same type of test over and over and over again. Uh, you don't want to uh, include some network logic usually, which I think I touched on a little bit. Um, there's ways to generate data that that's a bit easier versus not. Um, a lot of the stuff I wrote in a blog post recently uh, posted to my website for Unicorn Utterances called Five Suggestions for Simpler Tests. Um, so that was released in uh, May, like May 25th. So if you want to go check that out, that's on the website. Uh, other than that, though, um, just keep in mind that testing is a different realm and that it does take time to develop that skill set, even if you are a very experienced engineer, um, and that it's okay to, to take time to learn that skill set, even if it isn't something that's your strong suit right off the bat. So Awesome. This is, this is great information. So once again, I appreciate that you were on this podcast. Um, like, like we think we determined, I think you were on it two, two other times. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what were those other, other times that you were on the show? Do you recall? I think one of them was about asynchronous JavaScript. So touching oh, yeah, on yeah. what promises were, what, what uh, async and await do. Uh, and then the other time was about TypeScript in particular. Ah, uh, you so are like right. How TypeScript works and such. Yeah, definitely. If you're, if you're listening to this episode, if you liked what Corbin had to say, um, check out those other two episodes. It's the same great content. Uh, so Corbin's a, a really awesome developer. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, so uh, once it, like I said, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back on another episode. Awesome. Look forward to it. Corbin once again delivered some pretty fantastic content to the Polyglot Developer Podcast. So this episode was around testing and writing tests in your applications. 
but he also delivered some other great content in prior episodes. So for example, if you're interested in learning about TypeScript, there was an episode on that, as well as asynchronous JavaScript development. If you have an idea for a future podcast episode, let me hear it. Uh, drop a message in the comments for this particular episode on the Polyglot Developer blog. You can shoot me a message on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at polyglotdev, or you can do my personal handle, which is at nreboy. Either of them will work, but I'm always looking for ideas. And if you wanted to be a guest on an episode as well, that could work as well. So just, just drop me a message and we'll see where it takes us. If you like this episode and you're listening to it from Apple Podcast or another network that allows for ratings and reviews, it would mean a lot to me if you took a moment, left it a rating, and then maybe said something about the episode itself or the show itself, something that um, other listeners will find value in so that way they know what they're getting themselves into when they click that play button for the podcast. And that concludes episode number 37.